Acts chapter 19, Charles Spurgeon said, It is more to God's glory that the world should be conquered by the force of truth than by a blaze of miracles. Spurgeon also said, One ounce of faith is better than one ton of enthusiasm. And we're looking at a passage tonight that if we do not look at it in light of all Scripture, then we can end up with unsound doctrine, we can end up with extremes, and we can actually end up with an unhealthy or an unbiblical view of the Holy Spirit. And I think you know me well enough to know that I believe that one of the things lacking in our churches is a significant understanding of the power of the Holy Spirit to work in lives, to change people's lives. And I think that what has happened to us, especially in Southern Baptist life, is we have allowed extremities and a few things that we see from time to time to scare us off from the truth, which the devil will always find a way to scare people off from the truth. And so I want us to look at this word tonight, and I want us to understand something at the beginning. Scripture is always the final authority. Not my opinion, not any TV preacher's opinion, not any book published by any publishing company, the Bible is the final authority on every issue. Is everybody okay on that? We all right on that? In other words, nobody on TV today has more authority than what the Word of God has. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. You have to stay consistent with it. And so that makes truth objective and not subjective. It's not what's truth for you and may not be truth for me. Truth is truth. And so we shouldn't be scared of what the truth is. And we need to study the truth and make sure we understand the truth so that we can live and act and walk in the truth. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the True Spirit, said the degree of grace is by no means to be judged by the degree of joy or the degree of zeal. It is not the degree of religious affections, but the nature of them that is to be chiefly looked at. Acts chapter 19 and verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and saw, found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about 12 men. Point number one. What we don't know can hurt us. What we don't know can hurt us. Now, we need to understand that the Spirit and truth work together. The Spirit comes to guide us into all truth. And so the Spirit and truth work together. They are not in opposition to each other. They're not in conflict with each other. They are together. They are one. The Spirit is the author of truth. He's the author of the Word of God. He breathed the life. He breathed the words. It is a God-breathed, Spirit-breathed book. 
And so spirit and truth are together. Now, what happens is we have extremities in the Christian faith where some people just want all truth and no spirit. They just want to know facts. They just want to know truth. But there's no joy. There's no spirit in their life. Then there are people that just want all spirit and no truth. They, they, they just want to have a feeling. And quite honestly, where that can get you is, is like a drug addict. You just keep looking for a high, and no high will satisfy you because you have to come down. And then you look for another high, and another high, and another high, trying to relive, match, or go beyond a previous experience that you might have had. And so we have to come back and understand the context of these verses. So if you'll back up to chapter 18 and verse 24, it tells you why they came to this conclusion. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. That would be referring to the Old Testament Scriptures because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being only acquainted with the baptism of John. Now, here's Apollos. He's a Jew. He's an eloquent speaker, but all he knows about is John's baptism. He knows that John is preaching about a coming Messiah, but he doesn't know that Messiah has come. He doesn't know about Jesus. He's preaching that he's coming. Jesus, God saves, is coming, but he knows John's baptism. Now, let's summarize John's baptism in three phrases. Number one, repentance is a requirement for forgiveness. Repentance is a requirement for forgiveness. You have to repent. Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. John said, repent. The last thing that Jesus said to the churches was repent. Repentance is a requirement for forgiveness. There is no forgiveness unless there's repentance because we have to repent of that which we have sinned against God. Secondly, baptism is a picture of forgiveness. Baptism is a picture of forgiveness. When a person is baptized as one was tonight, that is a picture to us that they have experienced the forgiveness and grace of God. And thirdly, that there is a coming baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, the Spirit's going to come, and when He comes, you will receive power. He didn't say some of us would receive power, half of us would receive power, missionaries and preachers would receive power. He said, you, all of you, will receive power. He's going to come, and we're going to have power. Now, Apollos didn't know about the cross. He didn't know about the resurrection. He had not heard about Pentecost. And so Apollos is preaching an incomplete message. Verses 26 and 20 through 28 of Acts chapter 18, uh, Priscilla and Aquila pull Apollos aside, and as Paul Harvey would say, and now the rest of the story. They brought him up to speed. They said, now, Apollos, you know, you got a great message and you're a great preacher, but you, you have not heard that Jesus has actually come. And so they brought him up to speed, and then soon after that, Apollos leaves. You can see that in your text. He goes to Corinth. Paul comes into Ephesus, and he finds these 12 disciples who have responded to Apollos. But he realizes that they are incomplete <coughs> disciples. 
They've not heard the whole truth. And so in Acts chapter 19 and verse 2, he says, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now there are two aorist tense words in verse 2. And they point to one definite occasion. Two words, but they point to one occasion or one experience. The participle, when, expresses continuous action and simultaneous action. Now, this is one of those times when the the translators of the King James made a horrific mistake. Because if you have a King James, it says, did you receive the Holy Spirit since you believed? That word is not since in the Greek. It is translated when. New American Standard, NIV, Living, the message, any translation you read, just about outside, and I read 26 translations, King James is the only one that puts the word sense in, and it is a terrible, terrible translation. And people have built whole theologies on one verse mistranslated in the King James. And so that's why I'm not a translation addict, because I want to make sure that the translators got the language right when they translated it. So, the word, if it says since, if you don't write in your Bible, write this time and put when, because when is the accurate word in the Greek. Have you received the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Now, what happens is, if we don't understand what that word means and what this verse means, we can begin to seek an experience or a gift, or a feeling, and the seeking of that can in fact become for us idolatry. Because we will seek something other than the Lord. Almost as good as, looks like it's the Lord, but you can seek the things of God and not seek God. You can seek an experience with God so that you can have a feeling or an experience and miss God. It happens all the time. I mean, it happens in churches all the time. People start seeking the Lord and all of a sudden they get in a position of leadership and then they want to seek for more and more leadership. And they begin to seek a good thing, but it becomes a thing that stands in the way of them seeking the Lord. And our primary purpose in seeking is the Lord. It's a personal relationship with Him. And so, this passage in Acts, like every other passage in Acts, remember, Acts is a historical book. It is a transitional book. It covers about 30 years in the transition between the ascension and then the beginning of the writing of the epistles and the putting together of the gospels. And Luke is recording history here for us. You never build theology out of the book of Acts because there are so many things that happen in Acts that are unique to the book of Acts. They were unique for a reason. They were unique because God was establishing a church and he was making a statement. And so God did things in this transition time between the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. There's a transition between the gospel being just for the Jews and the gospel going to the Gentiles. It's a transition time between the establishment of the church and that old worship in the synagogue. Remember, 
Paul went to the synagogues. They still went to Jewish worship. There was a transition going on. The church had not yet moved from the Sabbath to Sunday to begin their worship. And so in this transition, a lot of things were in flux and a lot of things were going on. Now, the Spirit, let's just kind of walk through this for a second. The Spirit baptized the believers, the Jews, in Acts chapter 2, and there was speaking in tongues. The Spirit baptized the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and there was speaking in tongues. The Spirit baptized these Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 19. But there's, there's an interesting thing here, and, and you have to kind of read and study to find this. Why would Luke mention 12? Every place else, it's, you know, it's either thousands believed or many believed or many of the high priests believed. Why would he mention 12? Some theologians think the reason that he mentioned 12 is because the 12, remember there are 12 disciples, there are 12 tribes, there are 12 around the throne. The number 12 is a significant number in the, in the writings of Scripture. What, some people believe that one of the reasons he mentions 12 is because 12 is a number that symbolizes the Old Testament believers. And so what is happening in Acts chapter 19 is the gospel is being completed. The, 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 the bow is being put on the package. The gospel is being completed. And, and so what you have is the Spirit baptizing them in, in Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts chapter 19. Now, Paul's question is important because Paul says in Romans, uh, let's see, what is it, Romans uh, chapter 8 in 1 John 5, Paul says that the sign that you are saved is the Spirit. So if you don't have the Spirit, you're not saved. And how you know you're saved is you have the Spirit. And you have the Spirit, and that lets you know you're saved. So Paul's question is significant. It's not an incidental question. Have you received the Spirit? What he's really asking is, have you really been saved? Now that's a good question. Because I've met church members that I'm not sure have ever received the Spirit because they don't act like it. And so the question is, have you received the Spirit? Because if you have, you're not acting like you're saved. You're not acting like you're filled with the Spirit. You're not acting like your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you are saved and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, there ought to be some evidences of that, that you are in fact filled. There's a statement by Warren Wiersbe. I won't read that right now. Let's just go to these points. It is inaccurate to teach that these men were saved but did not have the Spirit. We just talked about that. John's baptism looked forward to the coming of Messiah. Now baptism looks backwards to the finished work of God through Christ. And so they were rebaptized. Not to be saved, but they were baptized in the name of Jesus. By the way, that's another reminder to us that baptism follows salvation. And if your baptism is on the wrong side of your salvation, you need to get it on the right side of your salvation. Your baptism always comes after your salvation. It's not what you did when somebody sprinkled you or confirmed you or did anything else. A, a baptism is a visible witness to the world that your life has been changed. And so they were rebaptized. And then Luke summarizes. We don't really know what all, Luke's, what all Paul said here. Luke's just kind of given us a summary of this, but he, he brought them up to speed. He told them about Christ. He told them about the cross. He told them about Pentecost. I'm sure he told them about his own conversion. 
And, and Paul is bringing them up to speed to let them know that the Spirit and salvation are one. They're together. Now, the second statement is, it is a misconception that laying on of hands and speaking in tongues is normative. That's a misconception. It's out there. But it is a misconception because you see Peter and John laying on hands on the Samaritans, but that's the only time you see them doing that. You see Paul laying hands on the Ephesians, but that's it. Now, why did they do this? If you would write in the margin of your Bible one word, identification, Paul was identifying with them and identifying them with the church. There was identification. This was a sign that they were a part of a church made up of Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles. They were a part of the body. This was an apostolic act by which he confirmed that, yes, the same gospel that saved the Jews and saved the Samaritans and saved the Gentiles has saved these believers in Ephesus. And so he lays hands on them. And secondly, it's a sign of apostolic authority. Because one of the signs of apostolic authority is the ability to do wonders and miracles. That's how they verified. During a time of transition, when the New Testament hadn't been written, the apostles had great power and great miracles happen through the apostles because they needed that. God gave them that as a sign of their authority. The reason it's not normative is because it's not repeated. There's no time after Acts chapter 19 and verse 6 that you ever read a statement that says somebody laid hands on them and they began to speak in tongues. So it's a unique situation in the life of the church, in the church at Ephesus. And if you study the scriptures in totality and you see scripture in context, you will see what God's doing here. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Sidlow Baxter says that there are 12 references to the Holy Spirit in Paul's epistles. Six of them are doctrinal, and six of them are practical. Of the 12 references to the Holy Spirit and the working of the Holy Spirit, Paul takes six of those, and he explains who the Spirit is, and then in the other six, he explains how the Spirit works. And you don't build a theology of the Holy Spirit on a verse or two verses. You build it on the whole revelation of God about the working of the Holy Spirit. And how he works. And so in verse 8, he says, The Holy Spirit came on them, and the mark of the Spirit's coming on them was speaking in tongues. Why? You have to remember, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us that tongues was a sign to the unbelieving Jews. God gave this sign to the unbelieving Jews that something had happened, a new dispensation had taken place, a new work of God had taken place. And as a sign to the unbelieving Jews, these 12 Jews had become believers, but remember, the other Jews in Ephesus hadn't. And to show the power of God, God allowed and used this act of laying on hands and of speaking in tongues. It was a public sign to unbelievers that God was at work. That was the purpose of it. To read anything else into that verse is to add to the text. The purpose of it in that moment, at that time, was assigned to unbelievers. I see a lot of things today that are assigned to look at me. This was a sign for unbelievers, that they might see a work of God. And the key is dealing with it objectively. Now, 
The reason I say it is not normative is because there are things in the Bible that happen one time or two times or three times, but they're not normative for our behavior. For someone to say, well, this is normative for a Christian. You have just as much right to say that anything that was given as a promise to the Jews is a promise for you. Folks, there are promises made to the Jews under the Old Covenant that don't have anything to do with you. They are specific promises to a specific people at a specific time. It doesn't mean that they're not truth anymore. It means that they're specific promises to specific people at a specific time. You see, if I'm going to take one thing and say, now that's going to be normative, then why isn't the parting of the Red Sea normative? Why isn't the axe head swimming normative? Why isn't the locust normative? Why isn't putting blood over our doorposts to save our firstborn normative? See, God often does things one time to make a point. And when we try to make God's point at a time in history, a point of theology on which we hang all our hats, we get in trouble. Because then we start demanding that God work according to our ideas instead of according to his plan. Everybody got it? And it's real easy to do. Well, God, see, you can do the same thing. Well, well, why did Jesus heal people different ways? One lady touched the hem of his garment. Power went out of him. She was healed. One, he spit, made spittle, and he began to see. One, he goes and dips himself in a pool, and he's healed. Ten lepers are healed. That's the only time you read of ten lepers being healed. Now, he may have healed a million lepers. We don't know. But we go on what we know, not on speculation. We go on revelation. Why did God not heal the same way every time? Because we'd have gotten a brochure together and organized a ministry and gone on TV and tried to raise money, which people are still doing today. We would have made a mockery and a business out of the gospel trying to repeat it. Why are there no descriptions of what Jesus looked like in the Bible? Because we'd run off pictures and worship them. We would worship an image. We would worship a, a, a visualization of God. And so God does something very unique here. And because we have a completed Bible, we also have a completed revelation. Now listen, there are no new revelations. When God said amen in, in Revelation, God said, that's all I've got to say about that. He, he was like Forrest Gump. That's all I got to say about that. God said everything we need to know to live the Christian life in the power of the Holy Spirit and walk in victory and live above our circumstances is revealed to us in the Word of God and empowered in us by the Holy Spirit. We've got what we need. So, what you have here is a biblical gift of tongues. And there's a biblical gift that is mentioned here. Now, a lot of what happens, and has happened especially since about the 1850s, is an imitation. I, I'm not an authority where I can say emphatically absolutely all and every, but I will tell you that most of what you see today, especially what you see on television, is an imitation. And much of it is psychological manipulation. When my wife was growing up, she had people go teach her that if you just do this over and over, you can learn how to do this. Now, why do you have to learn a gift if it's given? 
And I've seen it all, I mean, I've seen all spectrums of it. I, I can remember in, in the 60s when a, when a person came to speak in a church and somebody stood up and began to speak. Number one, if you see somebody stand up and speak and there's no interpretation, that person didn't speak from God. You better know that. I, I talked to a gentleman this week. He said, man, somebody stood up in the church during the announcements and started speaking in something I didn't totally understand and nobody interpreted. I said, well, I can tell you, the pastor should have interpreted and said that's not from God because nobody here has a revelation of what that meant. But I also know of situations where somebody would stand up and speak and they would begin to say, oh, I'm, I'm praising God, you know, and, and they just go off. And one in, one in particular, there was a missionary from a country in North Africa and what that person was actually doing was blaspheming the name of Jesus in a foreign language. Cursing Jesus in a public worship service. But the missionary happened to know the language and stood up and rebuked that person for cursing Jesus in the house of God. So, the reason I say there's an imitation gift and there can be a psychological phenomena in many instances is because even Plato discussed in his lectures 400 years before Christ speaking in tongues. Every religion and every house of prostitution and every house of false worship in Corinth practiced the gift of tongues. Every one of them did. That's why Paul had so much trouble with the Corinthians. They were trying to bring false practices into the true church. And so, Ray Stedman says, I fully understand the appeal that this makes to many. It seems to offer such a wonderful experience and a shortcut to spirituality. It seems so desirable. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22 says, the Jews require a sign. So God gave them one. And in the laying on hands, these people spoke in tongues. And there's another gift mentioned, prophecy in verse 6. And prophecy, this is the ability to open and expound the Scriptures in power and truth. The word means to shine forth or to speak forth. The prophet is the one who stands and speaks the Word of God and illuminates or shines, reveals what God's Word says. Tongues was a sign for unbelievers Prophecy was a sign for believers. The tongues were a sign so that the unbelieving Jews would know that the Spirit had come, that Christ had come, that things had changed, and there was a new day coming. A new covenant had been made with the church. Israel had missed their opportunity. God now had a new covenant with the church. To the church, there was prophecy where people could understand the truth. And there was a speaking forth of truth because they did not have the Scriptures. And so God gave these prophetic words, and in verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Secondly, by the way, uh, we're in Acts chapter 19, week after next too, so we're not through, so, but I'll get through quickly, all right? Deluding truth and seeking signs can confuse us. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. I love this. <laughs> so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Oh. Somebody take this to ICU. Lay it on somebody. I'm sure they'll be healed. 
By the way, you watch enough religious television and somebody will sell you one of these and tell you it's a prayer cloth. And it'll bless you because they've prayed over it. Listen, them praying over it's no better than you praying over it. Their prayers don't mean any more to God than your prayers mean. They don't have any more of the Holy Spirit than you have. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Elvis with those scarves. You know, he'd wipe his brow and those women would be standing there at the front and he'd put that scarf around the women. They'd go, oh, oh, oh. they just get so excited because Elvis. I mean, you know, there's a lot of Elvis impersonators on religious television. Well, let me ask you something. Why are we more impressed with miracles than we are with Jesus? I mean, if tonight, you know, we just lined up some wheelchairs in here and I just started walking around and just touching people on the forehead and they started up running up and down the aisles, boy, we'd, I guarantee you we'd be going to Elmaya and Hong Kong and Moe's and Applebee's and everywhere else. Woo, boy, you should have been at church tonight. Man, the preacher got down off that platform, and, it, you know, no wonder he's got a helicopter. I mean, the preacher got down. <laughs> he got down off that platform, and he started touching those people on it, and they got up and started running up and down the aisles. Let's say we had nine wheelchairs up here and nine people started walking. We'd be talking about that, wouldn't we? But what if nine young people stood up here and said, I prayed to receive Christ? We'd go out and say, well, that's nice. That was good. We wouldn't be nearly as excited about that. Now listen, Jesus can heal people with a word, but he had to die to save us. We are too impressed with miracles and not impressed enough with the blood of Jesus. I mean, he could heal people. That didn't cost him anything. There's only one time that says, I perceive that power has gone out of me. But when he died, he gave everything so that we could be saved. Now, there's a quote by C.S. Lewis, and it's a great quote. Miracles are for beginners. Miracles are for beginners. Look at the statement by Warren Wiersbe in your notes. In Bible history, you will find three special periods of miracles, the time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Jesus and the apostles. Each period was less than 100 years. Depending on how some of these events are classified, the total number of miracles for all three periods is less than 100. When our Lord performed miracles, he usually had at least three purposes in mind. One, to show his compassion and meet human needs. Two, to teach a spiritual truth. Three, to present his credentials as the Messiah. The apostles followed this pattern in their miracles. In fact, the ability to do miracles was one of the proofs of apostolic authority. You say, well, now, Pastor, do you believe in miracles? Absolutely. I, I, there are people in this church that doctors have given up on that are walking around healthy today. But I don't believe we have a right to demand miracles. Nor do I believe we should worship miracles. Because, you know, let's just say that we brought these nine people in here in wheelchairs, and I touched them all, sold them a prayer cloth for a seed faith gift of $25 a month. 
they're still going to die. And one day they're going to be laying in a bed and they're not going to be able to walk again. But if I give nine people Jesus, they're going to have him for all eternity no matter what happens to them. Right? So which is better? Which gives more life to the body? Miracles are the greatest miracle of people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ. The greatest miracle is a transformed life. That's the greatest miracle. Now, let me just give you an example. There sits Russell Cates right there. Everybody know Russell? Calls you and sings happy birthday to you. Russell was an alcoholic. He was a drunkard. God changed his life and he quit drinking cold turkey. Now, let me ask you something. Was that a miracle? He didn't have to go to 12 steps. He didn't have to read 14 books. God came into his life, saved him, and changed him. I've watched God take people off cocaine just like that because they gave their life to Jesus Christ. Change desires, change heart, change motivation, change power. Why? Because God's in the life-changing business. And I think what can happen to us is we can begin to maximize the incidental and minimize the essential. What's really important. Because one day all of us are going to die. And if somebody gets healed in a meeting, they're still going to get sick and die one day unless the Lord tarries. And they live until he tarries and they go when he comes back. We're all going to die. Something's going to go wrong with us. Something's going to happen to us. That's reality. And miracles are for a moment, but salvation is for eternity. And so here we have Paul. He goes to the center of witchcraft, the center of superstition. There are cult practices. There are witches. There are warlocks. There are magicians. And there are people that actually moved to Ephesus to learn these magical powers. And so when they saw Paul's sweatbands, they thought, man, that's good. I got to get in on that. And so what they did is these Jewish exorcists became jealous of Paul's power. Paul had a power they didn't know anything about. And they became jealous of it. And so they figured the name of Jesus was some magic formula. And so they began to try to use the name of Jesus. And there are people that try to use the name of Jesus today. And so they looked at this name of Jesus as a magic formula that they could use and a name that they could manipulate. And by the way, Jesus will never be manipulated. He will not be used. It's like the gypsies who took the phrase hocus pocus and use it with their magic spells. These Jewish exorcists were jealous of Paul's power and so they began to try to imitate and impersonate rather than embracing who Jesus really is. And so I want to give you two references very quickly. One is, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth from Ephesus, and he said, For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. That's 2 Corinthians 10.4. We are destroying speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And it was in Ephesus that he wrote the Rome, wrote from Rome, 
And he said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. What Paul did with the sweatbands was unique. You never see him referring to that again. You never see that being talked about again in Scripture. It was a unique moment at a unique time in the life of the church. And unfortunately, there are people making millions and millions of dollars off of gullible and undiscerning Christians who are still trying to sell their sweatbands that have no power in them. I read this week of one of the most prominent people on television today. I won't say who she is, but she talks like a man. She made $95 million last year. Her ministry just bought her $2.5 million home. They bought her a Learjet that's valued at $20 million and bought each of her children $500,000 homes. And I want to tell you something, folks. That's with people giving 5 and 10 and 15 and $20 because they're blessed by somebody on TV that they're not examining their hearts and their lives and their message to see if it matches up to Scripture. And she'll keep cashing the checks until God's people wake up and use some sense with the Scripture. And she's just one of 50 that are out there manipulating God's people. And I tell you, they give our charismatic friends a bad name and they give a gospel a bad name because they are teaching things that are watered down and diluted by their opinions and by their thoughts and not on the Word of God or even an accurate study of the Word of God and that's a shame I've, 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 got, I've, I've got a whole file I've got a file with a, with a cloth that if I kneel down on this cloth and face toward this ministry's headquarters and ask God for three things, I've got it in my file, and I ask God for three things, God will give me those three things if I take that cloth that I kneel down on and wrap up my best love gift and send it back, they will pray that my prayers will be answered. I wonder if I didn't have a love gift if they'd pray that my prayers would be answered. It's just a thought. You see the quote by John Stott? The wisest attitude to the sweat rag miracles is neither that of the skeptics who declare them spurious, because actually they did happen, nor that of the mimics who try to copy them like those American televangelists who offer to send to the sick handkerchiefs which they have blessed, but rather that of Bible students who remember both that Paul regarded his miracles as his apostolic credentials and that Jesus himself condescended to the timorous faith of a woman by healing her when she touched the edge of his garment. Here's my prayer. My prayer is that we would never use the Bible, or the Spirit to manipulate people 
or to try to manipulate responses from people. Let the Holy Spirit have free reign, but the Holy Spirit's never going to contradict this book right here because he authored it and he inspired it. And much of what we see today is a bad imitation of the real deal. And it's not the truth with power. And I can tell you, folks, I'd rather have one ounce of the real deal than a whole boatload of what looks like it's real, but when we get to heaven, it's just wood, hay, and stubble. And it didn't really matter. And it didn't really work. It just got us worked up into a frenzy. Somebody asked a guy one time, said, do you think Pentecostals go to heaven? He said, yeah, if they don't roll past it. <laughs> you see, folks, to be honest, I, I, I really don't care how high you jump. I want to know how straight you walk when you land. It doesn't matter if you praise God on Sunday. If you're not walking and looking like God on Monday, your Sunday worship didn't mean much. Because worship ought to affect our lives. And the Spirit ought to affect the way we do business, the way we act, the way we treat one another, the way we handle our homes. And that's more important than a brief moment of an experience. Because you can have an experience and still not treat people like you're supposed to. So let's make sure when we study the Holy Spirit, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, that we let Him have all of us. We'll have all of Him. We've already got it. We've got it at baptism of the Spirit. We, we can't get any more of Him. But He doesn't always have all of us. And all of us, if you read the epistles, looks like Jesus. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and self-control and kindness. That's what the fullness of the Spirit looks like. Anybody can jump up and get excited. It's hard. Remember what it says in Purpose Driven? Kindness is not kindness every now and then. It's a life of kindness. That's the Spirit. It's a life of self-control. It's a life of peace. It's a life of love. And you give me a church with people that live the fruit of the Spirit, and I tell you, we'll change the world because they'll see the real deal. All right? Everybody okay? Everybody's all right. This way means yes. This way means no. Some of you are not sure. Some of you just kind of... <laughs> I, you know, I'm not scared one bit of the Holy Spirit, but I am scared of the unholy spirit who tries to get us off track and who tries to serve as an imposter and an impersonator and tries to mimic the things of God just like the false priest in Exodus did with Moses. Satan's always trying to put somebody out there and then we have to get over that so we can point people to the real thing. And as Forrest Gump said, that's all I've got to say about that.